Acts chapter 6, um, it says, And in those days, uh, the church is growing. This is a church born on Pentecost. Uh, the apostles are ministering. There's sound doctrine in the middle of all this. They're going from house to house and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. They're abiding steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Uh, people are being added to the church, added to the church. It tells us in the last chapter that multitudes believed. And uh, it's in that momentum and all of those things going on with the apostles that we come to this scene in Acts chapter 6 where there's murmuring in the church, if you can imagine that. Now, by the way, I love this chapter because I figure if the apostles had murmurers, I don't feel so bad about the ones we have now, you know, because uh, everything was running smoothly, remarkably there in those days. And, uh, and the church is growing. It's blessing. God is blessing it. So it says, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, again, chapter 2, verse 47 tells us when Peter preached, this many were added to the church. The last chapter, verse 14, it says they were added to the church. Of course, we had a blessed subtraction in the last chapter, too, Ananias and Sapphira. But now it's saying that the disciples are multiplied. So you can imagine the number of disciples now are being multiplied. And because of that, now there's going to be growing pains. When the number of people are increasing, there's different issues per capita that you have to deal with. And that just comes with the territory. You know, I was talking with Don McClure about revival. He said, well, do you really want revival? I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you know, he said the church starts and it grows and there's this vibrancy and then it gets established and everybody gets comfortable and they have their favorite seats that they sit in all the time and they have their routines, everything's clean, it's where it should be. And then he said, you have revival, and there's then all of these babies running all over the church again. So there's French fries everywhere and SpaghettiOs, and you have to put up baby gates again and be vacuuming all the time. He said, you know, revival just brings in this whole new wave of life. And it seems like they're seeing this continually here. And being born out of a kind of a hostile environment, Judaism there in Jerusalem, so it's remarkable to watch the growth and the things that are taking place. And in the context then of that, there is this murmuring. There's a difficulty, it says here, that arises in this growing church. It says there arose, came into being, this murmuring, and it's of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows, the Grecian widows, were neglected in the daily ministration. So as we're reading through this, uh, we're told in the end of chapter 4 and so forth that people are bringing, they're selling land, they're bringing wealth, and they're laying at the, at the apostles' feet, and that the apostles are, dis, you know, they're distributing it to everybody as there is need. But you can imagine as this church has grown you know, our impressions are there's 10 to, at least 10 to 15,000 people now meeting in Solomon's portico. 
and the apostles, all this is coming to them. We're going to find out here that we, we just want to teach a Bible study. We can't do all of, you know, and like Moses, it gets to the point where you can't handle everything yourself. And all the different parts of the body are supposed to supply or they can't be health. So in this picture here, these Grecian widows, these are Hellenists. Uh, no doubt many of them Jewish. Some of them may be proselytes. They're in Jerusalem. They're living there. Uh, the Talmud tells us there are about 480 synagogues in Jerusalem at this point. And we're, we're going to read about the different ones with different nationalities. And the Grecian, the Hellenist believers, would read the Septuagint. No doubt that was the Old Testament that they were familiar with. Whereas the Hebrew believers were fluent in Aramaic, and uh, no doubt a number of them read Hebrew. And uh, so it seems like the Grecian widows are kind of getting pushed aside here to some degree in the daily administration where they're being taken care of. Now look, widows. Um, widows are mentioned 28 times in the Old Testament. And in those 28 times, it's basically the Lord saying, if you mess with the widow, you're messing with me. I will take up for them. I will look out for them. I will, you know, look after the widow and the orphan. James says, yeah, pure religion, undefiled before God the fathers. Remember widows and orphans in their affliction and keep yourself unspotted from the world. Paul will write about widows and what, you know, puts them in a situation that makes the church responsible to care for them. James uh, mentioned the widows there. Peter mentions widows. So this seems to be a part, a normal part of this apostolic church. Uh, so thankful for the things that Tom Swope is doing with the widows, luncheons, and so forth we have here. Uh, I think it's an important Ministry and evidently the New Testament church believed the same thing. But there's a, a problem here. So this is like kind of the first administration we see set up in the church because there was a neglect in the daily distribution ministration in regards to the Grecian widows. Now, as we study this, if you're familiar with it, we hear about these seven deacons, deacons being chosen. Interesting thing is the word deacon is used twice as a noun, once as a verb, never in the context of the seven men. I believe, obviously, these guys become a picture of and maybe a model for what Paul will tell us about deacons and the way they serve in the church as the New Testament develops. But they're not necessarily called deacons here at all. In fact, it says here what was being neglected is the ministration, the diakonos, the serving of the Grecian widows. Now, in context of that, so we had a money problem in the last chapter. We got a money problem in this chapter. Things haven't changed, have they? Um, it says then when this problem arises verse 2 is interesting it says then the 12 Matthias this is before Paul's converted then the 12 called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said now they call a multitude and they say it is not reason 
that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, by the way, the way that's written out, it almost seems like the problem self-inflicted, as, as it was with Moses. He just, it, it grew and the responsibilities became greater and he just tried to do everything and you just can't do everything. The way this is written is that it's not reason that we should leave, abandon the ideas, the word of God and serve tables. The Greek, the way it's written is, it's not right that having left the word of God, we are serving tables. So it, it seems like they themselves had been so drawn into the care of the church that it was affecting the time that they had to be alone with God's word, which was the cause of the church growing. It was the word of God. The word of God is not bound. It is seed that is sown. It brings forth. So it's this probably self-inflicted to some degree, and the 12 realizing that, they don't say, okay, let's get a posse and take out these murmurers. That's not what happens here. They say, all right, there needs to be an answer. So they called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it is not reason the the word is pleasing acceptable satisfactory it isn't right that we should abandon the word having left the word of god and now to give ourselves to serving tables instead of serving the word so one form of neglect never fixes a second form of neglect. Them neglecting the word doesn't fix the next level of neglect. And there's a calling. These guys have a particular calling, the foundation of the church and the establishment of New Testament doctrine. The apostles have been called to that. They had walked with Christ. And just the responsibilities of the church. Look, as the church grows, there's just more and more to do. There's no way around that. I come here and read the bulletin to see what's going on. Because I just can't keep up with it all. I can't, I can't do that. Um, and I'm so thankful for so many people that serve on so many levels and every joint, every ligament, supplying, you know, um, that I might give myself, I know what God has called me to do. It isn't any more important than anything else that everybody else does, but it's that's my shtick, you know, and uh, he, he, I'm a pastor, I'm to feed the flock of God, that's what he's called me to do, and in our church, you have to realize, I I can't do all of the weddings, I do some of them, and and when I know, I'll say, sure, I'll, I'll you know, the Lord kind of pokes at me, I'll do that one, okay, I'll do that one, can't do all the hospital visitations, but sometimes the Lord will say, get there, some people then say, oh, you're here, I must be dying. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can't do all the funerals, I can't do, but I do the ones I'm supposed to do. And and people will get offended because I didn't do the wedding, I didn't get to the hospital, I didn't do the funeral. But if I do all of that, there's so many of us, then I can't do this. And over years, what I've realized is the unpardonable sin is if the flock gathers and don't get fed. 
as long as people get fed, they'll stay and complain that you don't do everything else, you know. And these apostles had a particular responsibility. You know, the, the New Testament books are not yet written. It's so important what they're doing. But today, as we study this chapter, there's a whole nother level that changes the world that's laid on top of that. And, of course, in a very unsuspecting way. So these twelve called together the multitude of disciples unto themselves. And they say, guys, it isn't right that we should leave the word of God to serve tables. There's just so much going on, this administration in regards to the widows, the less fortunate. Wherefore, because of that now, he says, look, look ye out among yourselves for seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom you may appoint over this business. So look ye out is an imperative. You've got to do this. This is not a suggestion. This has to happen. Uh, we, I, I, we need you to do this. The apostles don't pick these men. They say to the people, you need to do this. There are certain requirements here. He says, number one, look ye out among yourselves. There's people right there. There's people available. You know, we'll always get calls from churches and, hey, can you send us a pastor? How many people are coming to your church? A couple hundred. They're sitting there. You need to find them, you know. They're, they're already there. The people are there. That So he says, he doesn't say go to Madison Avenue and get the slickest administrator that can take care of this problem so you don't have a headache and divide up the money and minister to the widows and minister to the people. He doesn't say that. He says to the people, they say to the people, you need to pick out people, first requirement, among you that are part of this, that are involved, that are invested, that have skin in the game, that love the church and consider it their church. First requirement, those that are among you. Seven men of honest report, good reputation, but as our word marturion there, uh, Jesus says that wait till you're filled with the Holy Spirit that you may be witnesses, marturos. This is marturion. This is a way that their testimony, their witness, they, they have to be from among you, and they have to have a testimony. Look, you think they just said to this multitude of people, just pick out any seven guys. No, and, and these seven men don't start to serve when they get picked. They get picked because they're already serving. These are men in obscurity. We never would have heard of them. They're serving, laying down their lives in the church. The Lord knows that they're there. People may not notice, but Jesus always notices. And anything we do for him is, is always taken note of in heaven. It will be rewarded. So these seven guys that they pick out, doesn't seem like there's a big argument. They might have said, well, pick out seven guys. Of course, got to be Stephen. Yeah, Stephen's got to be a man. Philip, yeah, yeah, I was going to say that too. You know, these are guys of good report, it says, already among the people. They already have a rep. And then it says they need to be full of the Holy Ghost and full of wisdom. The apostles say, whom we may appoint over this business. 
So these are guys, look, with a full life. It says here, full of the Holy Ghost, full of wisdom. Look down in verse 5. It says, Stephen, full of faith and full of the Holy Ghost. Down in verse 8, it says, Stephen, full of faith and full of power. Uh, you know, the, so these are men, there's, there's fullness in their walk with the Lord and, and filled with the Holy Ghost. These are guys that are already emanating the very spirit of Christ. They should be full of the Holy Ghost. You're going you're gonna to get into a, you know, a confrontation with the Greeks and the Hebrews and the money. You know, all of the ingredients for church trouble are here. Money, discrimination, partiality, schisms, mad grandmas, you know, everything you can imagine. They need to be filled with the Holy Ghost and they need to be filled with wisdom to step into this. Not an easy issue. Juggling, ministering, serving, dealing with discontentment and accusations. It's just part of family life. If you raise kids, you know that. And to do that, they have to be filled with the Holy Ghost, to, 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 to minister in that way. Look, each of these ministrations, the ministry of the Word and the ministry to people, they're both necessary. God does not honor one above another. It's both relative to calling, and both will be you know, rewarded according to faithfulness. But God says, if you're going to wait on tables, you're going to do the most practical of things. You're doing that representing me. And I want, what I want you to see in this chapter, God is saying, because a lot of churches never make it past chapter 6 of Acts. When they have something like this, it ends up in a church split. And the Greeks head in this direction and call themselves the Greek first church of Calvary Chapel. And the Hebrews go in this direction, the, the Hebrew first church of Calvary Chapel. You guys have lived through this. You know, lots of times it's a church split, and pe the, the church doesn't get past this. So God puts it on the page and said, yeah, there was trouble. This church wasn't perfect. There were hurt feelings. There was genuine neglect and discrimination in regards to these Grecian widows. And the apostles hadn't got it right. They're still, this is still on the job training. They're still rookies in all of this. And so this is what they did. They looked to the people and said, look, we need help with this. We don't think it should be happening. So you come to us with seven men. We're going to leave it up to you. We want these seven men to be men you know well of your own midst. They have to be filled with the Holy Ghost and with wisdom. They have to be of good report. They're, they're, you know, the well spoken of. You gather them to be over this business filled with the Holy Ghost, to wait on tables, to wait on widows, to take care of this. But, contrary, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word, both necessary. We will give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. By the way, probably, and I'm trying to learn in my own life, that's the order it should always be in. You give yourself first to prayer and then to the ministry. You know, it's, you give yourself to private ministry and then the public ministry. What are we really worth unless we come from that secret place when we're with Jesus and then we bring forth something that's much more beneficial to anyone. So. 
they say we want to give ourselves continually to prayer and to the diakonos of the word. So they're serving in that sense of a deaconess too, the deacon as we look at this interesting. And saying the saying, look, pleased the multitude. Do you know how hard it is to please a multitude? The saying pleased the multitude, and they chose Stephen. Now, he had to be a guy who's already filled with the Holy Ghost. They must have already known this guy. There's, he's, he's wise. He's of good report. He's been here with us. You know, he already had a reputation. They chose Stephen. Look what it says. A man full of faith. Some of your translations might say full of grace. Full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. If you're full of the Holy Ghost, you are full of grace and full of faith. So this is a man, he's full of faith and full of the Holy Ghost. Look, to be filled with the Holy Ghost, a spirit-filled Christian is not a title, it's a condition. I mean, there are times during the day and times, seasons of my life where for some reason I really sense the presence of the Holy Spirit. I really sense the presence of the Lord. I really sense his leading. And then there are other times where I kind of feel dry as a bone. I don't know, you know, where, you know, Lord, you know, he said he would never leave us or forsake us. So when you don't sense Jesus where he is, is he standing right next to you not wanting you to sense him? Because he said he never leave us or forsake us. Because sometimes he wants us to do things in faith. Sometimes he wants us, you know, to know his word and to step out. Um, if he if he appeared and wrote out a you know like he was like a, a garment or like you know Google Maps or something wouldn't take any faith. So Stephen is a man already full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And then it says Philip, Procurus, the Caner, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, who was a proselyte of Antioch. Nicholas is converted from the Gentile world to Judaism and had come to Jerusalem. He's a proselyte who is now a born-again believer. Interesting picture because these are all Greek names. They leave it up to, and there's a Jewish majority, no doubt, involved in this process. It's the, it's the congregation, it's the people, multitudes that are doing it. And wonderfully, you know, the, the Jewish part of the congregation evidently feels terrible that the Grecians, uh, their widows, felt like they were being neglected. So the Jewish part of the congregation, as they pick out seven men, they pick out seven guys. All of them have Greek names. And I don't think the same, well, this will shut him up. No, I don't think that's the, the deal at all. Look, Stephen is chapter 7. Philip is chapter 8. Stephen is the first martyr of the church. He's a man. He's going to be doing miracles, filled with the Holy Ghost, filled with wisdom, steeped in the Word for a ministry that's one sermon long. Go figure. Philip, the evangelist, is the first missionary in the church. 
He heard that Jesus said, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you can be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and Philip's the first one to go. Philip, who's getting appointed to take care of tables here, opens up the Gentile world to the church. Stephen, waiting on tables, is the first martyr in a long line of martyrs. His name means crown. No doubt he was a crown to the Lord in a wonderful way. This is a man who lays down his life for Christ. It's still going on. It's interesting. One of the, the guys that's been here that um, is was trying to get missionaries out of northern Afghanistan because Kabul and the airport there is so under scrutiny it's hard to do anything but up the northern part of Afghanistan there's still a bit of freedom and I think they got 22 missionaries and their families out but he texted me yesterday and said Joe there's one family we didn't get to and uh, the Taliban got there first and asked them to renounce Christ and their 11-year-old son refused to renounce Christ, and they cut off his head in front of the family. And then they took the two young girls, he said, probably into sex, the sex trade. And he said, so a couple of our special ops are, are still hunting this down. But an 11-year-old laid down his life, refused to renounce Christ. And in that world, he knew that was no, there was nothing good at the end of that physically. Stephen here is the first martyr, filled with the Holy Ghost, filled with potential, filled with all kinds of gifts, and it's all for one sermon. And no doubt Saul of Tarsus is there listening, because when we go through the book of Acts and you read Paul's sermons, he stole everything from Stephen. So I don't feel bad stealing sermons from somebody. And again, by the way, if you steal sermons from one person, it's plagiarism. If you steal from 12, it's research. Paul was guilty. Paul was guilty of plagiarism. It's, they, they chose these seven men. We don't ever hear of any of the rest. There's a tradition that Procurus was a scribe, a secretary for John the Apostle. That's just tradition. Some try to say that Nicholas is, you know, the, the guy who started the Nicolaitans. No, he started the Nickelodeons. There's no star, there's just no evidence in that at all. They chose these seven, whom they then set before the apostles. The, the congregation comes, these are the seven we chose. And when they had prayed, the apostles, they laid their hands on them. First time in the New Testament hands are laid on somebody going into an office in the church in a, in a means of serving. So they prayed, and when they lay their hands on them, they're just confirming. It's just a confirmation. They're affirming that these men are already faithful, already filled with the Holy Ghost, already all the requirements they asked for are there. And just the laying on of hands doesn't impart anything but germs, you know, it just says, we agree with this. The Old Testament, we're laying on of hands. So these are Jewish men. They'll still do that. We lay hands on someone to ordain them as a pastor. Nothing's imparted at that point. We're, already rec we're recognizing, affirming that that gift is already functioning when we do that. So 
it says they laid their hands on them. And look what it now Luke gives us one of those reports. And the word of God increased, and it's increased greatly is the idea. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem. Now it's multiplied greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. So this remarkable overview again. Okay, here's what the church didn't throw in the towel. They didn't divide. They knuckled under. They said, okay, this is right. You got there shouldn't be any neglect. We need to take care, care of this. They did what was right. They, they administrated things. They put it into motion. And Luke says, and the word of God increased. The apostles get back to the ministry they were called to. And when the word of God, whenever it increases, the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, the majority... Uh, the, Josephus tells us there were 20,000 priests functioning in Jerusalem at this point in time. And the Sadducees were a large part of those priests. Pharisees, certainly, but Sadducees. And that tells us at least some of this great number of priests that believed are Sadducees. And the Sadducees don't believe in angels. They don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe in any of those things. So there are remarkable things here taking place uh, just in the witness of the church. And you wonder how many of these Sadducees knew Zechariah and Elizabeth. How many are reflecting back? Wait a minute, this old priest, I remember when he said this. It just His son, John the Baptist, the forerunner, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, they talked about this. I mean, Lizzie, remember? And, you know, maybe some of them, you know, knew Annas and, or, you know, uh, I mean, Simon or Anna in the, in the temple precincts, you know. No doubt many of them probably stood in the temple and debated with Jesus in those last days when he had the confrontation with scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees in the temple courts. And now it says a great company of the priests now are coming to the faith. Now that's going to be trouble. When the establishment sees some new thing happening that isn't the status quo and doesn't go with what they think is the right thing, they get upset. When the majority doesn't get their way with a smaller group that's seeing great things, that majority gets intimidated, they get angry, they get insulting, they begin accusing. Welcome to earth. Right? Great number of the priests now are coming and being obedient to the faith. And Stephen, now it tells us, he is full of faith and of power. That's because he's filled with the Holy Ghost. He's, it's, he's told us that he's filled now with faith, interesting, and power. And he did great wonders and miracles among the people. It's the first time in the book of Acts anyone besides the apostles are doing signs and wonders. This is a guy waiting on tables. You understand? Faithful men and women. P- 
people that God recognizes and the congregation recognizes because they serve, they get involved, they want to put their hand to something, they want to help the less fortunate, they want to help you know the church run. It, they're not they're not at all contained to. We we tend to think these are deacons. Well, they're more than that. In fact, they're not called deacons here. They are serving. And in their serving, their gifts are growing and their reputation. And Stephen now is seeing signs and wonders take place in his ministry. Some waiter, huh? You want that guy to come to your table and say, oh, your eye looks a little funny. You can take care of that. Now you can read the menu and tell me what you want. He's full of faith and filled with power. And great wonders and miracles are done among the people. Then there arose, there always does, then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and them of Cilicia, and of Asia, they arose now, and they are disputing with Stephen. Um, synagogue of the Libertines, um, some of the scholars tell us these were Jews that had served Romans that, that it had either been granted their citizenships, they had been set free, proselytes that had been set free. The Romans, when they took a territory, if they knew you were a doctor, they knew that you were a metal worker, they knew you were a carpenter, they would keep you alive and give you as a gift to a friend. We want you to have this carpenter. He's great, you know. I uh, want you to have this stonemason. It'll be a big help. You know, they give them as gifts. Here's, I want you to have this doctor. It's much cheaper than Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Take the doc, you know. And then the Romans considered it an act of kindness to give that individual at some point their freedom. And evidently here we have this synagogue of the Libertines, whatever the context is exactly, they've been set free. No doubt very loyal to Judaism because of that. The Cyrenians, remember Simon of Cyrene that carried the cross for Christ, North Africa, what had they heard from him? How many of them were already bugged because of the story he told about Christ? Alexandrians, again, North Africa. And then, very interesting, them of Cilicia. When we turn to chapter 21, and Paul is giving his testimony, he says, Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, of this, uh, a no mean city, and I beseech thee, suffer me to speak, and so forth. In the, in the territory of Cilicia, Tarsus was the capital city. So Paul, most likely, Saul of Tarsus, was at times in this synagogue in Jerusalem. Um, and I'm assuming in this contest with Stephen, they were disputing with him, was Saul part of that? Because in the next chapter, when Stephen, this is all leading up to this first sermon and first martyr in the book of Acts, Saul is standing there consenting to the death of Stephen. 
And you have to understand, here's Saul of Tarsus, like the smartest guy in the world. You know, they've found ancient records of Gamaliel saying, I couldn't keep this guy in books, you know. This is this is an egghead. This is a Pharisee of the Pharisees. This is a guy who said, and he's debating with a waiter who's full of the Holy Ghost, and he doesn't stand a chance. And every time, if he confronted Stephen or heard what was going on, he must have got madder and madder. I got this degree, and I got this degree, and this PhD, and this PhD. I get piled higher and deeper all day long. I got all these PhDs, you know, and and this country bumpkin I don't know what to do with him you know he, he, everything he answers me I, I'm stunned I'm stuck I don't know how to answer so you can imagine some of the chemistry that goes on here in this situation the difference between being qualified and available God's not looking for people that are qualified it's wonderful if you're qualified and available he's looking for people that are available you know he took Moses aside for, you know, 40 years in the backside of the desert. He took John the Patmos. He took, he took, you know, John the Baptist into the wilderness for years. But there's not a lot of time left. So God will make you old fast if you're willing. He'll wear you out in no time if you're available. He'll do in your life what he needs to do. Stephen brought before us so interesting and it says, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the Spirit. Now, it told us earlier, he's full of wisdom and he's full of the Holy Spirit. They're not able to resist the wisdom and the Spirit by which he spake. And they suburned, like that King James word, they hired men which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now he's going to be brought in front of the Sanhedrin. He's going to stand in the same place Jesus stood. He's going to be accused of the same thing, make blaspheming Moses and the law and so forth. So interesting. He's filled with the Holy Ghost. He's speaking forth God's heart. He's serving widows. He's caring, you know, for the less fortunate. And now he's getting stuck in front of these stuffed shirts. They hired men to sneak up on him, and, and these men said, oh, yeah, they're, they're paying them for their, their blasphemy. We heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, interesting, and came upon him. The Greek is they came upon him suddenly and unexpectedly. Was he in one of the middle of one of those debates when this happened? We don't know for sure. But they came upon him, and it may come that way on us as well. They came upon him suddenly and unexpectedly and caught him. They, the idea is they took hold of him tightly to not let him go. And they brought him to the council, the Sanhedrin, is what it says. And they set up false witnesses which said, This man ceases not to speak blasphemous words. What this guy says is crazy. Against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Now, we don't know what, we, you know, they're making an accusation. Had he said, you know, Jesus 
when he was brought before Caiaphas, and, and they, they accused him of wanting to destroy the temple. And Jesus had said, no, what I said is destroy this temple, not the temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. Or had Stephen been talking to them about the days we're living in, the end of the age, and as that sermon had started, Jesus says, you see here, are you amazed at this? Not one stone is going to be left upon another. It's not going to be thrown down. Maybe they had heard him, but, but the idea is they're taking those things, taking them out of context, and using them as an attack. Then it's the same thing, overturning the law of Moses. Jesus, you know, they heard him say, well, the greatest, of, what's the greatest commandment? It's this, you, you love God with all your heart, your neighbor, yourself. All the rest of the law and the prophets are fulfilled in that, you know. So who knows what they're taking? Who knows the accusations they're bringing? But they're making the same kind of accusations against him that they made across uh, uh, upon Jesus, of course. And he's going to change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And then it says this, And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. So all of those who sat, Sanhedrin, they're sitting, they're sitting in a semicircle. All of them got tears. And they got Stephen standing down there in the front. The only way Luke could know about this is because Saul of Tarsus was there in the scene, no doubt, and related it to Luke. All that sat in the council looking steadfastly. So the whole council now that brought him in to Shanghai him are all riveted on him because of his appearance. They're looking steadfastly on him because they saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. So there's a glow. He's lit up. You know, they, you know, they never seen a neon bulb. They never saw a light bulb. You know, when they see somebody lit up, that's the only light bulb they've ever seen. You know, it tells us that Moses, when he came down in Corinthians, you know, he he hid his face so they wouldn't see his face glowing. It tells in Exodus 34, he came from the presence of God and, and the, the glow of God was upon his face. They're saying this guy, Stephen, wants to throw Moses out the window, and then all of a sudden, standing in front of them, he looks like Moses, and his face is lit up like Moses' face was lit up, and it says the whole semicircle's like looking steadfastly. They've, they've never seen anything like this before, ever. And his face is shining, as it were, the face, it says, of an angel something they had never seen before. And this then sets the stage. I'm going to go into chapter 8. It sets the stage for chapter 8 when we follow this. It's the longest sermon in the book of Acts. Paul takes parts of it in everything he preaches from here in because he's looking at this guy lit up. He's thinking, all of this learning I have in the school of Gamaliel, none of it makes me glow. Look at this guy filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, Paul was overwhelmed with what he heard. And then when he stoned at the end of the next chapter, it says Paul is standing there watching but consenting to it. And it drives him over the edge. He goes out then to persecute Christians, 
to slaughter them, to make them blaspheme the name of Jesus, destroying Christian homes. He's the antichrist of the book of Acts. He's the guy you think can never get saved. But God used a waiter to sow the seeds in his life so the world could be changed. Read ahead. Read ahead, and then next week you'll, you won't be able to concentrate because it'll smell like coffee in here. Uh, but next week we'll, we'll go into this sermon of, of Stephen, remarkable, and we'll learn a, a number of things about Jesus and about Moses that are nowhere else in the Bible. Nowhere else in the Bible. In Stephen's sermon here about Abraham, remarkable things. So read ahead. We'll jump into this together next week. The stage is set in this chapter, chapter 6, for chapter 7, where we'll be next week. Um, Tonight, look, we're going to have the musicians come. We have some extra time for worship. But nothing menial. You know, if an opportunity comes to serve, serve. You never know what God's going to do. You give something to somebody, you never know where it's going to go and what it's going to produce. You take the time to call somebody or say hello to them or write them a card, how much I appreciate it. You never know what that's going to do. We've heard so many times that somebody is on the verge of suicide and we're thinking about it and got either a phone call or a letter came that day. Raul Reese was getting ready to blow out his brains. He was going to kill his wife and kill himself when she came home from church and flicked on the TV and Chuck Smith was on TV. And he fell on the floor crying and got saved. His wife came home, opened the door. He said, honey, I'm saved. She slammed the door and wouldn't believe it. You know, he went to look for her. She had already left church. When he got home, she was already home. He's knocking on the door, and she opens up. He says, Sharon, I'm saved. She's looking at the door and locked it because <laughs> she didn't believe him. You know, but you just never know the things we do, the things we say. Don't demean them in any way. If the Holy Spirit tells you to do something, it doesn't matter at that point who's noticing and who's seeing that because it's not going to be hidden. It's done for Christ, and it's going to last. And whatever is done for Christ will last. And we're going to see him soon. So crisis in the church. No church is perfect. If you find a perfect church, don't go to it because you'll ruin it. This is the best dysfunctional family going right here. No church is perfect. There's going to be problems. There's going to be problems in the future. How do we take care of this? Oh, no. What do we do now? Oh, no. Now we got to tell people you can't put, got a bit bigger size, no coffee cups in the sanctuary. You know, it's just uh, everything that, that moves forward never moves forward without spiritual warfare, ever. There is no progress without spiritual warfare. Write it on your forehead. Somebody will be mad at me for saying that now. But let's stand. Let's pray. Look, I'm going to pray for you before we begin to worship. If you feel like God has been prodding you to do something and you've been hesitant or you've been resisting, then listen to this tonight. Listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. There may be a value on your life you can hardly understand. Again, Philip. Nobody heard of Philip till we got here. He opens the... We're here tonight because of Philip. He opens the Gentile world. Waiting on tables starts. 
Let's bring our hearts before the Lord. Lord, I know you've overheard. And we thank you for your word, Lord. And um, the church has been the same ever since, Lord. You're the head, Lord. And uh, the church functions under your headship and your leadership. You're the over-shepherd. And Lord, you know when we're misrepresenting or when we're being territorial or Lord we're parking and getting comfortable somewhere where you're going to move us Lord you know when there's contention between people that are needy and they feel they're being neglected Lord you wrote all of this down all of this is open before you Lord and we thank you for that Lord so let us learn your church You said the gates of hell would not prevail. Here we are 2,000 years later. Lord, this apostolic church, this historic Orthodox Christianity, Lord, let it, Lord, be part of our breathing in and breathing out. Lord, we pray for ourselves, for the person on our right, on our left, Lord, because they're here with us, they're among us, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, Lord. They'd be filled with your spirit and with wisdom, Lord. And they would have that witness, Lord, that good testimony. Set us on fire, Lord. Pour out your Holy Spirit. We, We look at the world descending into the morass, Lord. And without your outpouring, Lord, without your spirit, without an awakening, without revival, there is no hope, Lord. So we look to you, Lord, we thank you for this. Now, there's no small thing that we can do for you. It's all, Lord, as you appointed, it's all wonderful, it's all notable. And, uh, Lord, let us receive the exhortation that would come from this passage tonight. Let your Holy Spirit plant it within us. And, Lord, as we lift our voices in song, we pray that that would raise, rise before your throne. You say you inhabit the praises of your people, Lord. We pray on this Philmont Avenue, Lord, the, the mountain of brothers, Lord, that what happens here would please you. You say when we meet and speak on your name, you stoop down and you listen. So, Lord, we pray your heart will be blessed as our, the fruit of our lips rises, Lord as we sing your praise, and that, Lord, there would be great unity here as there was in the worship before the study. And, Lord, it would be just a a common prayer that we're singing that we'd all be lifting our hearts to heaven together. Lord, do that work in us. We trust you. We pray in your name. Amen.